Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Paul's letter to the Roman church? If you are using your pew Bible this evening, this will be found on page 945. As we move from passage to passage in this letter to the Romans, it is especially important that you not lose the thread of Paul's thought, especially here in the ninth chapter. So if any of you did not hear Dr. Barclay's sermon from last week, I urge you to go back and listen to it. As we've said, Paul is dealing with the initially alarming fact that most of his fellow Jews in his day had rejected their Messiah Jesus, even as many Gentiles had received him with faith. Since God enables faith, one would wonder, does this mean God has broken his promises to Israel or has acted out of character with the Gentiles? We saw in last Sunday's sermon how God is entirely free and well within his rights as true God to do as he pleases in salvation. And he receives glory from both the vessels of wrath, those who reject his son and incur judgment upon themselves, and the vessels of mercy, those who by sovereign grace believe in the Lord's Messiah and are saved. But questions linger. What does God's election of a people really mean? Does God cease to be a God of mercy when covenantally favored people end up rejecting him anyway? Can God really be trusted to save us? In tonight's passage, the apostle marshals some proof texts from the Old Testament to prove that God's character in this whole matter is unimpeachable. And that the good news of Jesus only fulfills and expands what had come before it. It never contradicts the old covenant. So I want you to turn your attention, if you would, to to verse 19. Now the passage for tonight that we're going to focus on is verses 25 to 29. But to give the context, I'd like to go back and start with verse 19. So would you... Uh, Read along as I read uh, Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, 
I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. Our Holy Father, this is at once both a hopeful and a difficult text, a chastening text. We pray that you would work grace into our hearts this evening and holiness, that we might understand your inclusive love and also your clear demand for holiness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do each of you understand that if you have faith in Jesus Christ this evening, you're in these verses. You're here. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a vessel of God's infinite mercy. Last week's passage ends referring to those vessels of mercy, those trophies of divine grace, those people who are fully reconciled to God through God in Christ. Look with me at the very last verse of last week's passage, verse 24. Now Paul is is speaking about those vessels of mercy here. And he says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. See, Paul clearly doesn't believe that God has failed in the first century, but instead through Jesus, the Lord was forming a new people of God made both of ethnic Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. God had not abandoned the Jews, but had actually expanded his mercy through this Jew named Jesus to include really the whole world. In the big picture of the advance of the kingdom into the nations, the main chord being struck was one of mercy, outreaching grace, forgiveness, and salvation. And so Paul now shows from the Old Testament how, you know, in the way that we would say of someone, it's just like him or it's just like her to do that. Well, Paul is showing from the Old Testament that this outreaching grace and love is just like God, the God of the Hebrews. He uses the writings of the prophet Hosea to make his point. Look at verses 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You remember how the story of Hosea goes. He is led to marry a woman who, like Israel itself, will end up being unfaithful to him. 
But as Hosea shows his sinful wife, Gomer, that he is faithful to her even when she's not faithful to him, he models the way God is faithful to Israel even when they are not faithful to him. And eventually he wins her back. More than, I think, any other prophet, even Jeremiah, Hosea's actual life sort of becomes his prophecy. His life with Gomer becomes a living analogy to the relationship of Yahweh to his people. And the story of that relationship is of a God loving a sinful people out of sheer undeserved grace. And God also requires Hosea to pick symbolic names for his three children to show some aspects of this uh, divine relationship with Israel. The first child is a boy named Jezreel, which means to cast off. It comes from the same word to cast off, to cast out seed. For God was going to cast off Israel temporarily in an act of providential discipline as he would scatter the people of the northern kingdom through the incursion of the Assyrians. And then there was a girl who was to be named by the joining together of two Hebrew terms, two Hebrew words. This poor child would be named Lo-Rahumah, Rahumah, which means not loved or not pitied because God was not going to show his covenant people any special kindness when they were under the discipline, the boot, as it were, of the Assyrians. Discipline had to hurt in order to be true discipline. And then a third child, a son, was born to Hosea and Gomer, and he was to be called Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Now this one may, I believe, have been more of a future prophecy speaking to when the covenant people in mass rejected the Lord Jesus despite his filling the category of suffering servant Messiah for the Jews. And I think at that point, you see, the Jews become not God's people in a covenantal sense. I certainly never refer to the Jews of today as God's chosen people, at least not in the sense they were before their substantially, uh, almost not unanimous, but overwhelming rejection of Jesus. Now the whole world is the mission field of grace, and the beloved Jewish people are a part of that mission field. But those are three really burdensome names, aren't they? Cast off, not loved, not my people. And yet, that's not the whole story. Because in the book of Hosea, Hosea also prophesies a time when God will rename his children, calling cast off, planted. In other words, the seed that was cast off has now been planted in the greenhouse of God's covenant love. And he's going to call, not loved, my beloved. And he's going to call, not my people, my people. And these are the verses that the Apostle Paul refers to here in Romans, extracting the most gracious part of the story for his purposes in his argument here in Romans 9. And that really is the the grand story of the Bible, isn't it? That's the, 
the sweeping story of the Bible. God moving towards a sinful people who were, who were not in any covenantal relation to God. And God comes to them like a suitor in a marriage and he binds himself to them in covenant and loves them. God is moving towards a wicked people who did not belong to him due to their rebellion and sin. And through grace he is making them his dear and beloved ones. God is taking a people scattered across the earth after man's fall into, into sin in Eden and bringing them back to himself in the promised land. And ultimately, as we know, in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the big story of the Bible. This was true for the Hebrews, and now in Christ, it is true for the Gentiles, that is, the the nations as well. Now we can understand how this explosion of grace and salvation into the larger world through the preaching of the apostles in the first and second centuries was not some kind of anomaly. It's not some kind of uh, freakish event that should shock us. This was God acting in character, not out of character. No, this is just like the Lord God we know from the Old Testament. Because that's who he is at his core. A God who is pleased to save sinners. That's what Abraham knew him to be personally. That's what Moses thought of him. That's what David declared. That's exactly who Paul and Peter would have confessed as well. That he loved the unloved. That he plants the scattered ones in the gracious garden of the Lord, that he loves to make his people who were not his people into his people. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Paul wrote to the Gentile believers in Jesus who lived in Ephesus, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a beautiful statement about a beautiful God and a beautiful gospel. The entire movement of redemption in the Bible is in the basic direction of an outward-reaching, radically expansive inclusion. As the book of Acts says, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Even back in the time of Abraham, the promise of God to his people wasn't just for them. For his stated plan was that he would bless Abraham's descendants so they would in turn be a blessing to the whole wide world. Always God has been this way. And that's just what happened, of course, in the coming of Jesus and the preaching of the apostolic church. It's a a story of redemption comes to the United Nations, you could think of in today's terms. The whole world is now included in the outreach of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, we must not let people who misuse words take them from us. The gospel of Jesus is the most truly inclusive power that the world has ever seen. 
Nothing has ever mirrored the virtues of diversity, equity, and inclusion like the New Testament spirit-filled church. Now, I know that this is a red-hot topic these days, these DEI mandates. I hear it frequently from many of you who have to work in corporate America. In fact, I, I heard it this week from a conversation with a friend here in the church. He didn't know I was going to be touching on it in my sermon. These often oppressive DEI mandates are typically heavy-handed and frankly abusive of the truth of inclusion. But words like diversity, equity, and inclusion are our words. They're the church's words. They're our concepts. They're our gospel in many ways. The psalm we sang a little while ago, I didn't notice this till I sang it, has the word equity in it. The Jerusalem Council, for instance, in Acts chapter 15, could have been labeled the DEI Council of the Church. Because in it, the diversity of the church was defended in the ongoing ministry to the Gentiles in the first century. The equity of the church was advanced by not requiring the Gentiles to become Jews first through things like circumcision. And the inclusion of the Gentiles was secured through the validation of Paul's ministry especially to them. And within a generation... The Gentiles would be the primary leaders of the church, not the Jewish, the original Jewish disciples. It was a DEI initiative that actually worked instead of burdening and offending the people. My friends, when we argue against certain aspects of DEI programs in our culture, and we must, it really matters how we do that. We need to remember that the devil does not mislead God's people by typically promoting 100% false ideologies. Now, Lucifer, the, the name means the, the light one, the, the, the being of light, is a fallen angel of light. He misleads by fatally mixing truth and error. Today's DEI initiatives are like heresies. They are a distortion of a good and essential thing in human community. All, all heresies, all heresies contain elements of truth. You know, I distinctly remember a phone call I had many years ago when I was back in the so-called mainline uh, Presbyterian denomination. I was, I was driving down the road and I was talking uh, on my flip phone, so that'll tell you how long ago it was. And I was talking to the man who I've often referred to as the mentor uh, in my ministry, uh, Pastor Lowell Sykes. We were discussing the relentless homosexual advocacy in that denomination, which was at that time striving for the full legitimization of homosexual behavior in the church through ordaining practicing self-acknowledged homosexuals. And the activists were arguing 
that just as the church had largely overcome racial discrimination in things like ordination and church membership, so it now needed to do the same for self-affirming homosexuals who would identify as gay Christians and march in the pride marches and all of that. And my friend Lowell said, Dean, this is a mixing of things that are not alike. Actions and lifestyles are not the same as race. He said, this is the devil's distortion of the gospel. And that is what DEI programs often are today. When good things, like including people of different races or nationalities or cultures or genders, and I mean the, the two actual genders that involve chromosomes, when those things are put on the same level as something like transgenderism, and all are then required to salute the new rainbow flag of anything goes sexuality as long as it's supposedly consensual, well then we're not really talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in any way that Western civilization, or frankly any world civilization, or the Church of Jesus Christ, has ever defined those words. Ever. No. Then we are talking about violating personal conscience. We're talking about intellectual tyranny and enforced immorality by today's sexual utopians who have deep contempt for God's creation purpose in making humankind male and female and his moral authority to govern our sexuality. And I do know DEI have other problems, but I've, I've tried to focus on this this. Uh, worst one in many ways. In this abuse of these good concepts, this distortion of these godly gospel ideas of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're actually now talking about not including people who respect the Ten Commandments and destroying real intellectual diversity where people can disagree freely without punitive action. It is truly the devil's distortion of God's glorious truth in the gospel. It substitutes a kind of denuded, secularized grace for the heavenly, holy, transformative grace of the cross, which when received always makes the one receiving it more like Christ. And friends, you cannot effectively fight that distortion of the truth unless you understand and appropriately advocate the truth of God in its place. To simply say you're against DEI because it's evil and leave it at that is to play right into their hands. Remember, there are still plenty of people in the world who even oppose the Bible's definition of these same things. Friends, we must learn how to take every thought captive for Christ, but to do it in a truly Christian way. Well, as if on cue, Paul now turns to the writings of Isaiah to sort of make a similar point. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Clearly, the great expansive inclusion of the whole world in God's mission of salvation in Jesus does not mean everybody among the Jews or the Gentiles will be saved. For while the grace of God is outgoing and outreaching to people everywhere, it is always a transformative grace. It always changes us when we receive it. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? He wrote to the, uh, the Corinthian congregation, the most uh, undisciplined and worldly congregation of all the New Testament churches we read about in his epistles. He wrote to the Corinthians, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see that that incredible phrase, and such were some of you, contains the, the glory of God's outreaching grace. It came to them in Corinth, but it changed them. And they're not what they used to be. I'm not saying they were perfect and didn't need to continue to confess sins. But they were new people, new men and women. So, to be saved by this grace of, of God that is outreaching and inclusive, we must all repent. We have to be holy people. We have to seek Christ's likeness because that is always the fruit of such grace in our hearts. We certainly cannot say, well, I'm a human being. I'm created in the image of God. God God therefore owes me redemption and grace. He's going to have to overlook my unrepented of sins. And as we see here, in Isaiah's day, the sons of Israel, all the membership of the race of the Jews could not assume they were right with God. Because Isaiah himself, a a great Jewish prophet, taught that only a remnant of them, only part of them would be saved. Yes, it was a great privilege to be a Jew in the ancient world. Uh, God had made covenant with the Jews, as we saw earlier in this chapter. But though they had covenants, Paul says, and receiving of the law and temple worship and the promises and the patriarchs, They were loaded with spiritual riches, but without faith in the coming of Christ, they would be lost. And many would be. A remnant would believe. This is not a minor theme in the Bible. The word remnant appears over 200 times in the Old Testament alone. And it is no different in the visible institutional church either, for it often appears in the New Testament. Merely being a, a, a part of a Christian culture or, or treasuring a Christian 
heritage or being part of a Christian home school or a Christian school or being baptized and on the roll somewhere, that does not make one right with God. One cannot say, I am a son, I am a daughter of Sovereign Grace Church, so I am destined, or we would probably say predestined, for redemption. I had a a friend of mine just two weeks ago reveal to me that he is actually an eighth, eighth generation ARP, Associate Reformed Presbyterian. And I know that he's glad for that. It's great heritage. But that same friend would never presume to say, therefore, of course, I am saved. To see the fulfillment of the outreaching grace of God in Jesus Christ, each of us, without exception, must trust in the Lord for redemption, repent of all our known sins, believe his word, and serve his church. We must not presume upon God's grace in his Messiah. We must not think that because we like the sound of God's great inclusion of the nations in his gracious plan of salvation, or that we find it inspiring, or that we are willing to sing about it, or even that we are willing to financially support Christian missions to the world. We must not think that because of those things, we are uh, personally, in any automatic way, one of God's elect. For as Paul said in verse 24, it is those who are called, and that's a spiritual word, effectually called by the Spirit of God to Christ, whether they are Jew or whether they're Gentile, those, he says, those are the ones who will be saved. But brothers and sisters, apart from that, apart from that, that, that call of Christ's heart to your heart, Apart from true conversion and repentance and faith, well, we read the result here. The Lord will carry out his sentence on earth fully and without delay. Carrying out his sentence is the language of judgment and wrath. And when the day of judgment comes, it will come with appalling immediacy There will be no time for a change of heart. No time to go read your Bible. No negotiating a truce with God. No plea bargains with the judge of all the earth. The age of grace, inclusion, and repentance will be over forever. There will be no more preaching And there will be no more pride marches. And there will be no pride that we were not in pride marches either. Because we will know that would only be by God's intervening grace. Human pride and presumption in all its forms. Like those those bubbles that kids in the summer blow through with the soap suds and blow these big beautiful bubbles they'll all that pride all that human presumption will just be gone on that day it'll be obliterated in the whole universe 
It'll be too late for any nominal churchmanship to matter. And justice will be done on the earth. And nobody's going to think they deserve any better either because the magnificent, majestic holiness of God will be apparent to all. Paul quotes Isaiah again in the last verse here. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I trust there are many here this evening who are, in fact, the believing remnant of God's people. I believe you are. The final verse here reminds all the vessels of mercy that it is only by mercy, only by mercy for the remnant in any age of the church, the age of the Jews or the age of the church, only by mercy will we be that remnant. And so we can't congratulate ourselves, Jew or Gentile, Every one of us is saved by sheer grace alone. If God had not blessed us in redemption, we too would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Archaeologists have found the very ruins of several ancient burned cities just where the infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah would have been. God's wonderful grace in his beloved Son, has provided our escape from all condemnation, all judgment, though in ourselves we deserve no better than they did. But we are a vessel of mercy, as I said at the beginning. Isn't it a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, to be a vessel of mercy? Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Just like Hosea bought his sinful wife Gomer back from being trafficked as a sex worker, Christ has brought us back to himself through his blood. We are a repenting trophy of his grace. But even that doesn't happen automatically, you understand. We must believe the promises and repent. And repentance is not a mere feeling Jesus liked to call it bearing the fruit of repentance, the repenting behaviors. So I'll close with this. Several months ago, a minister friend of mine told me, and I've mentioned this in adult Sunday school a month or so ago, but this minister told me about an angry, proud man in his community who came to church in desperation because he wanted to help his wildly rebellious teenage son. So he and his family, including the son, began to come to church. Now, it came to be known to the pastor that this man was a part of the Proud Boys Association. In fact, he was in leadership in this sort of neo-militia organization uh, here in North Carolina. The pastor did not affirm him in this choice, but took him as he was and began to teach the family and do the the means of grace that, that bring us transformation. 
He said, my friend said to me, Dean, we just taught him that while we have enemies in this life, we are to love our enemies and not be violent. Of course, this man uh, insisted that the Proud Boys were not violent. They had no intention of, of creating civil disrest and such. And then what happened was his son, this incredibly rebellious boy, was amazingly converted and transformed and went from one thing to another. And it just it, it astonished the, the man, the father, and blessed the whole family. And, and my friend said that despite this good news, he, he noticed the man's countenance was clouded and he, he seemed to be distant for a time. And he got a phone call from the father and he said, he said, I need to meet with you and the elders. And so they gathered at the church and they sat around a table. And this man, who was a part of this association, uh, pulled out a butterfly knife and brass knuckles and he set them on the table in front of this pastor and the elders. And he said, I have resigned from the Proud Boys organization because we were talking violence and disruption to the, to the state. And he submitted himself to the elders saying, you men, you tell me how to live faithfully and I will do it, brothers. And by the way, this man's son is attending our denominational Christian college and he's interested in seminary. I sat next to him at my general synod meeting a couple of weeks ago. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners because he accepts us, he forgives us, he brings us to the store of his grace and mercy, and he helps us, and he changes us because we repent of our sins in the new power we have through the Holy Spirit. Oh, beloved of the Lord, trophies of his grace. Vessels of mercy, repent of your sins and believe the gospel because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we uh, are stunned again at the, the incredible grace of the gospel. Your radically inclusive, outreaching grace that has brought every one of us into this hall tonight. You have designs on every nation, tribe, and tongue to be brought into your kingdom. And yet it is not only radically broad, it is radically narrow. And you demand that we go through the narrow way of Christ and his cross, that we repent of our sins, that we commit ourselves to the kingdom of God, putting every loyalty under our loyalty to you. And so, Father, help us to do this. Help us to present the gospel to our time in this balanced and wise and fulsome way. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.